Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with all of you. Uh, I think there's some, so the review, I know the review questions, or the review question answers are going out right now, and then um, Pastor Miller is putting out the handouts uh, right now as well. As soon as, as soon as he gets done with those, uh, we'll get uh, those passed out as well. Um, okay, so I'm going to be picking up where Will left off. In uh, the, the larger catechism, we're going to be looking at question 20 this morning. And as you'll see in a minute, there is there's a lot of meat to the answer in this question. Uh, I'm only slightly convinced that Will left off at this point on purpose for me to pick up here. But that's okay. That's okay. I can take this one. All right. But, uh, but first, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our good and gracious... Father, we thank you for this day, your wonderful Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you are a God who does not remain silent, but has uh, spoken in the scriptures and throughout redemptive history, and that we have the opportunity to study your word and to dive into the catechisms. And uh, we uh, pray that this morning would be edifying for everyone and we pray that you would be with us uh, also in worship this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, Hunter, would you mind passing some of these out to everybody? Okay, so this morning, um, for our review questions... Let's go ahead and only review questions uh, 15, 17, and 18. Um, I think these deal most readily with our question this morning with issues of providence and creation. Uh, the others kind of discuss angels and things, and, and we've, we've read those, I think, pretty extensively. I think we know those at this point. Um, and those aren't, I, I think, really pertinent for our discussion this morning. Um, and for the sake of time, uh, like I said, we have a lot to go over. So let's start for a review by reading question uh, and answer 15 together. Um, so you should have, hopefully have that in front of you by this point. So what is the work of creation? The work, the work of creation, creation is that wherein God did in the beginning by the word of his power make of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days and all very good. Great. And question 17, how did God create man? After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to all. And question 18. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Great, and our question this morning, question 20. What was the providence of God toward man 
in the estate in which he was created. The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his health, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and permitting to eat of the tree of life from the upon communion that is. Okay. So, as you can see, there's a few things in this answer uh, to talk about. So, a lot of detail here, a lot of different things, different points, different theological topics that we could mention, a lot of different rabbit trails that we could potentially go down. I won't be able to pursue them all, but if there is something specific, something you want to talk about, maybe from one of the scripture readings that we bring up, different question that you might have, please bring it up. Let's talk about it. Uh, but with that in mind, let's dive into this. Now, by way of introduction, uh, for those of you who don't know, there is actually a proper way to exegete, uh, if you will, the confession or the catechisms. Uh, now, you don't have to do this, but I think it can be very helpful uh, to understand when you get to maybe some bigger or overwhelming chunks like this, bigger answers. <clears throat> The first thing you want to do is look at your semicolons, okay? They kind of serve as your individual ideas, kind of the trees of the forest, if you will. And then from there, you can kind of step back and look at the bigger chunks or the bigger pictures um, to give you a more holistic idea. Um, you begin to look for things like your therefores, right? You can group bigger sections together, look at where themes maybe start to change. Um, spot, you see if you can spot bigger ideas. Okay, let's see if we can do that in our answer today. Maybe we can kind of practice a little bit. So the first few lines, right, are kind of uh, dealing with the idea of creation and Eden, right? We see man's created in paradise. He can eat the fruit. He has dominion of the creatures, right? Marriage is ordained. We're, we're, we're all still in Eden. This is also part of the creation, right? And then same thing with the next line. Right, the Sabbath is instituted. It's all for communion with God. But then in the next line, I think we see a shift in the context of what we're talking about a little bit. We're not, we're not really talking about creation anymore. Now we're talking about covenant, right? Tree of good and evil, death, perfect obedience, right? This is covenant of works language that we're getting into. So I think with that, we can kind of see our two forests, if you will. Right, our two big ideas. And then our semicolons, like I said, kind of break apart those ideas within the forest for us. Um, and again, you, you don't have to do this, but um, I know you're all really good Presbyterians and you read your confessions before you go to bed every night. So I, I thought this might help you go to sleep uh, a little bit better. Um, but let's see if we can navigate the first part of our forest today. Um, I. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through it all today. I'm not going to lie to you. But Lord willing, we're going to try. Um, this this answer will probably take us a good two to three weeks to get through. I'm just going to warn you now. Um, <laughs> but I, I hope we can get through today. 
So the first part that I want to look at is how Adam was created. Um, the first part of our answer lays out three things for us, right? The providence of God toward man and the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, uh, appointing him to dress it, and giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth. Now, before we get to these three things, I think that we're presupposing something that we need to uh, address. <clears throat> what was the estate in which Adam was created? Now, Will already beautifully uh, addressed that man was created out of the dust of the earth, right, and Eve from the rib of Adam. That's that's not what I'm I'm talking about. I'm speaking specifically regarding Adam's sin nature, and that's that could be an open question. What was Adam's sin nature when he was created? I'm sorry, say that again? Right, okay, yeah, so he was he was sinless, right, but able to sin. Sinless, but able to sin, right? And how do we know that? Right, well, well two reasons. At the end of creation, right, God declares all things very good. Right, God can never declare something very good if it was sinful, right? And then, secondly, because fall hasn't happened yet, Right? Pretty straightforward. But why why is that important? <clears throat> well, again, two reasons. We need to have a right perspective of who's going into the garden. That's important. But more importantly, we need to understand the first Adam's sin nature as it relates to the second Adam. Okay? And Christ's sin nature. Now we're going to go on a small tangent here, but I'm a teacher. It's my progress. Okay. <clears throat> because this is, this, is very, this is a very important Christological doctrine as the two Adams relate. Now, <clears throat> put your thinking caps on. Okay. We're going to go from milk to meat here. Okay. So hang on a minute. <clears throat> Could Christ have sinned? I'm not, I'm not asking if he did sin. I'm asking if he could have. So most of you think he could have? Is that what we're, that what we're thinking? What's the sensation there would be no Okay. Any more thoughts? He can't go against his, his own nature. So you think he could not? So, so you think he could not have sinned? I'm not sure. But <laughs> you second the the no. He could not have. You third. Okay. So we're kind of split. A little split. Little split going on in the room. Good. Good. Let's just stir the pot a little more. <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Good. I like. I like. I like the discussion. Okay. This is this. This is why this is important. This is why we need to talk about this. 
We already said that Adam was able to sin, right? We, us, mankind, on the other side of the fall, we are only able to sin, right? Or in other words, we're, we're not able to not sin, if you like that language, right? Okay. Jesus, and this is the question I pose, right? Your two fancy theological words gets into peccability, right? In other words, was he? And this is where we put the not. Was he? Eight, and I think I put this in your review. So hopefully you have your your hand up. Hopefully you have them. Was he able not to sin? Peccability, or was he not able to sin? Impeccability. Okay. See where we're putting the not, right? This gets into the hypostatic union. May the two natures of Christ be fully God and fully man. <clears throat> now, the two sides, there are points of agreement, right? Peccability and impeccability. They both will say that Jesus', Jesus uh, temptations, his struggles were very real. Um, that Christ did experience struggle and pain on earth. And that he did not sin. Cool. We're all on the same page so far. The arguments for peccability, in other words, that he was able able not to sin, they would say, well, that if, if Christ could be tempted, then, then he could have sinned. And that's a deduction from temptability. So in, in other words, temptation implies the temptation to sin. If, if Christ could be tempted, then naturally he could sin. Basically, one leads to the other. That's that's kind of the argument. That's kind of how it goes. Because <clears throat> they'll they'll look at the other side and say, well, if, if Christ was not able to sin, then his temptation wasn't real. He didn't he didn't really struggle. He couldn't really sympathize with his people, like the scripture says. If Christ couldn't sin, then then he had no real responsibility or human agency. Okay. Now, on the flip side, impeccability. This is the right one. Christ was not able to sin. If Christ could be tempted, I'm sorry, temptability does not necessitate susceptibility. What do I mean by that? Just because Christ could be tempted does not mean he must sin. Just because Christ could be tempted doesn't mean he must sin. Let me give you an example. Just because an army is going to be attacked doesn't mean they have to be overtaken. There's a false assumption that what applies to us must apply to Christ. Because here's the thing, being sinful is not essential to human nature. Right? We, we've already seen that with Adam. Although Christ's temptations are not exactly parallel to our own, right? He was tried through his human nature as we are. Right? Christ's temptations were in every way like ours, except that they didn't originate in the heart. They didn't originate internally, they originated External. Okay? He was tempted from without, not within. 
didn't have sinful heart issues like we do. Christ manifested his freedom by not sinning. Jesus was free to do the will of the Father. We have to affirm the impeccability of Christ. Very, very important. He was not able to sin. It, it really is in, inconceivable or irreconcilable with Scripture to think that God could sin. And we get this Christological uh, doctrine from passages like Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. You know that one. It's the one that everyone's always afraid of. Talk about, especially with your non-believing friends. We're going to look specifically at verses 6 and 7. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Who though he, in Jesus, was in the form of God, did not account quality with God, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in the form of God. In the Greek, it's en morphe theon. Okay? It does not say en scheme theon. Okay, and you all like great. I don't speak Greek, but fantastic. <laughs> scheme is another word for form which does denote changeableness or instability. Okay? We see it used in passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 31. But here we have morphe, okay? which means that his inner being is actually as it is. Right? It's correctly realized itself in the individual. It implies the essential attribute used everywhere else in the divinity of the Son of God. I like what B.D. What Warfield says about this. It, it highlights the intrinsic deity used in this phrase. Paul's not saying that Jesus was kind of like God. No, it's, it's the highest way that he can say that Jesus has all of the divine attributes. The word form here expresses the summarizing qualities that makes a thing what it is. And verse 6 declares Jesus' pre-incarnate status. So we've got it. We're good, right? And then just when we think we've got it all figured out, we get that super confusing phrase in verse 7, right? No, it's not confusing. Look with me. But Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Okay, well, what do we do with empty? Well, it's Echinoisen in the Greek, which means to bring to naught or to empty. And this simply means that Jesus made his divinity of no account. All right? And the rest of verse 7 tells us how Jesus made himself of no reputation. He, he takes on something. Well, what did he take on? The form of a servant. That's interesting. Don't overlook that. God himself comes down from a position of power. And out of the love for his people, drove himself to a position of weakness, to a position of a servant. Jesus empties himself by adding the form of a servant. This is where we have the hypostatic union. 
emptying, of course, should not be taken literally. And it certainly shouldn't mean to be taken that he's relieving himself of divine attributes in any way. He's taking on a second nature. To say that Jesus loses any of his divine attributes is what's known as canonic theology or kenosis theory. It's completely heretical. All right. Everyone come up for air. Everyone still with me? Okay. Why did I drag you through all that? I want you to see the parallels between the first and the second Adam as they come into the world. Throughout the Bible, we see this wonderful story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And in the coming weeks, and we've already started, we'll start us off on this, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the garden exploring a lot of different topics. Creation, beauty, love, Sabbath, fall, evil, suffering. God's sovereignty and providence in light of all these things. Maybe diving into some theoreticals and different questions people have. But no matter what topics we unpack, we always need to remember and keep in mind that the first Adam was our covenant head leading us into creation and the fall. He was created sinless but able to sin. He started in perfect communion with God in paradise and plunged us into chaos. The second Adam, our new covenant head, leads us into redemption and restoration. He was sinless but not able to sin. He started with a world rebelling against God in chaos and leads us into paradise. Okay? The two Adams are diametrically opposed. So as we keep Christ, our redemptive second Adam in mind, let's walk through the garden with our first Adam. Okay? So let's look at Adam's home. Where's God put him? The first thing we need to look at is the garden. And how about we start with some scripture. Can I get someone, please, uh, to read Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. We've got 8 and 9. In the original Hebrew, please. Excuse me, that would have to be Dutch, the language. <laughs> I can do that if you like. <laughs> I'm sure you're good. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, two, eight through nine, please. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so, pretty straightforward here, right? Um, we're told that there's a, a place called Eden. And within Eden, God plants a garden on the east side. I think this would be y'all's east, right? And this, but this, is, this isn't just any old garden. The, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, uses the word paradesos to translate the Hebrew word for garden. And it's where we get our English word for paradise, right? So, so this is a, a lush beautiful garden. 
and our, our imaginations probably couldn't do this justice. And in this garden, God provides an abundant, uh, wonderful amount of food, right? And and who is this God, by the way? Look, look in your Bibles, right? We talked about this when I was up there last time. That's Yahweh, right? All caps, right? That's Lord. Don't ever forget who we're talking about. This is the one true God. And notice the, the two trees in Adam's new home. They're specifically mentioned. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we'll, we'll circle back to the significance of these trees later um, in other questions. But for the meantime, just know that they're there. Keep them in the back of your mind. We'll see what God says about them. Um, uh, Actually, let's, let's go ahead and read. Somebody, uh, can I get someone to read Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 and 17? Bueller. Bueller. Genesis 2, 15 and 17. You got it. Thank you, sir. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Perfect. Thank you. And this passage proves the next part of our catechism answer, right? God places Adam in the garden and he appoints him to dress it. And verse 15 clarifies what the divine mean there, that Adam would work it and keep it. Very important language there. Um, we're going we're gonna to come right back to that. That he and also that he gives him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth. It's the other portion he can eat all but one thing. And verse seventeen tells us, right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All but all but one tree. Everything he can eat except one thing. So God creates sinless Adam, puts him in paradise, gives him an abundance of food, and only restricts one thing. But he places him there with a purpose. Gives him a purpose. And I think that's where we need to spend our time. Because it's here in verse 15 that we see Adam as a priest. Priest. Gives him a priestly role. When Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, they're given a royal and priestly status. They're God's vice regents on earth. Now, let's be clear right out of the gate. Jesus is the only one who fulfills all three roles of prophet priest and king perfectly. Okay? And we'll examine that in later questions. But Adam, in verse 15, is put in the garden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew word for work is abad. It means to serve, to work, to till. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar. It means to keep, observe, or to guard. Now, independently, these words can be used to refer to a lot of different activities, but when they're grouped together like this, it denotes the role of a priest. Okay? And it pictures the garden as a temple. It pictures the garden as a temple. I really like what T. Desmond Alexander says in his book From, From Paradise to the Promised Land. That's what he says here. When used together, they, being these two Hebrew words, tend to be linked to activities associated with the tabernacle or temple. The book of Numbers uses them in tandem to describe the duties of the Levites in the sanctuary. 
This strongly suggests that man's work is priestly in nature rather than agricultural. The man is appointed first and foremost as a guardian of sacred space. He was not simply created to be a gardener. And if you're still not convinced by this, consider this. God walks in the garden amongst Adam and Eve as he later does only where? In the tabernacle. right? The place that he reveals his glory. A place where God's special presence is revealed. The places of worship. Eden is entered from which direction? The east. Right? Which direction are later sanctuaries entered from? The east. When the temple is built in Ezekiel, we read in Ezekiel 44, verse 1, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east. And it was shut. What guards the entrance to Eden after Adam and Eve are expelled? A cherubim with a flaming sword. No one is reaching the sanctuary or the tree of life after they're gone. It's protected, right? The same creature is sculpted to guard the temple in Ezekiel 41. And this is the inner temple, right? It is, it is the, the most holy place. We read there in Ezekiel 41, verses 17 through 20. To the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside, and on all the walls all around, inside and outside, was a measured pattern. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees. A palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side, and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple all around, from the floor to above the door. Cherubim and palm trees were carved. Similarly, the wall of the nave. In Genesis 2.10, we see a river that flows out of Eden to water the garden and provide life. We see the same idea with a life-giving river flowing from a future temple that brings life to the Dead Sea in Ezekiel 47, 1-12. And then lastly, in Genesis 2, 11 through 12, we see the lands where the river flows are abundant with gold and onyx. These stones are used extensively to de uh, decorate the sanctuaries and the priestly garments in uh, Exodus 25. Gold in particular is associated with the divine presence. There is no doubt the garden was created to be a sanctuary. And Adam, it's garden. It's priest. Now, this is not to say that Adam's role as gardener is not important. Quite the contrary. His role as a gardener actually teaches us, I think, several things. First, God ordains work before the fall. He ordains work before the fall. So what? That means work is a good thing. Work is a good thing. Some are going, mm, are you sure? Because you don't know my boss. I get it. Okay. But hear me. God prescribes our work 
as men and women in our respective roles as honoring and glorifying to him. Okay? If you're working in a job within biblical parameters, then lift up your head, dear Christian. Okay? Because that work is a good thing. Okay? Do not listen to the world. Okay? Do not grumble. But that only leads to dissatisfaction in the Lord and more sin. Okay? But do your work with a glad heart and for God's glory. Not your own, not for other people. Okay? Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay? Because if we don't, we fall into idleness, which is sin. Right? In 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? God detests the slugging. It's good to work. We're created to work. Okay? And the other thing we learn from Adam's role as a gardener is how he should have successfully executed his priestly role. What does a gardener do? What does a gardener do? He plants. He, he grows. He cultivates new life. Right? Adam... And even to Gerald, are, and uh, T. Desmond Alexander said this in his book as well, are created not only to serve within this temple, or the garden in this case, but also to extend its boundaries outward so that it fills the whole earth. As the priest, Adam should have cultivated new life in the worship of God. He should have not only maintained security of the garden, but expanded the reaches of God's worship beyond this sanctuary. If Adam had executed his priestly role correctly, God should have been able to walk in more than just the garden. In other words, the whole world was originally created to be a sanctuary, a place of worship where God could walk amongst his people. And God gives Adam the opportunity to carry this out, does he not? God assigns Adam a royal authority alongside this priestly role. Let's, Let's examine Adam's role of, of king. And this will move us into the next section of our catechism answer. Yeah, we'll wrap up with, with this part. <clears throat> After placing Adam in the garden... He also, for an orchid, he puts the creatures under his dominion and ordains marriage for his help. Okay, so let's start with uh, the first part where God puts the creatures under his dominion. Can someone please read for me Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28? 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here we see this royal authority granted by God in two ways. First, and quite simply, in God's command to have dominion. 
and rule over the created order. In three verses, that command is repeated twice. Verse 26 and 28. When an author repeats something, it's important. Even more so in Hebrew. So at the heart of the divine plan for humanity is this idea that Adam and Eve would rule the earth as God's vice regents. God has created this world, and he is delegating authority to them to rule it. And here's the other thing. God declares that he has made mankind in his own image. Now, so many different applications and implications of this verse, right? Okay, we could go down a lot of different rabbit trails with this one. But I'm going to try to keep us on point with our catechism answer and what we're talking about here. Okay. In these two verses, this is repeated three times. Verses 26 and 27. I think maybe it's important. All right. Man is made in the imago Dei, the image of God. Right. And this this applies to both men and women. Okay. Male and female, he created them. Right. Now there's there's two trains of thought when it comes to understanding the image of God as it relates to what we're talking about here. Okay. Some scholars will look at this and say that because the image of God is linked in verse 26 to the exercise of dominion over the creatures, that's specifically what it's relating to. The, 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 the bearing the image of God demonstrates how mankind is endowed with authority to rule over the earth as God's representatives. In other words, to, to, to bear the image of God means to exercise your royal authority or, or kingly office to act as God's vice regents on earth. But then other scholars will will look at the differentiation between male and female in verse verse 27 and say, well, well, hold on. To bear the image of God is better understood in this complementary relationship seen in, in male and female, right? As is, is expressed in marriage and society. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's act of creation, right? And something completely separate from the rest of his design, such as the animals, right? For it's only in men and women that we see God's communicable attributes, right? The things we share with God, Will, I think it was Will and Pastor Mel brought this up, right? Love, beauty, reason, language, capacity for relationships, right? So in other words, to bear the image of God is to resemble, albeit imperfectly, who he is. So we have these two views here. Which one is correct? Yes, it's a both end. Okay, men and women resemble God in many ways. Right, we display many of His attributes, and in doing so, these resemblances allow mankind to represent God in our authority to rule. We can successfully and confidently carry out His command. A, a, let me put it this way: a Planet of the Apes situation. Could never happen, right? Why, right? Because they do not bear the image of God. Okay, they don't display His attributes, right? Nor were they given the command to rule, to do so, right? But it does make for an entertaining movie. Okay, we as men and women can establish worthy relationships with each other, one another, the rest of creation. We rule this world in a way that glorifies God 
and preserves the wonderful creation that he's provided to us. And so bringing this full circle, this, this state that Adam finds himself in, in the garden, he's granted kingly authority, right, wherein he must exercise careful dominion over God's creation as he bears God's image. And simultaneously, he's a priestly leader set to guard and expand this garden sanctuary where he can be in full communion with God as the Lord walks in his presence. These are, these are no light roles placed on Adam. Okay? These are some heavy responsibilities. Roles fulfilled perfectly by Christ. But does Adam do this alone? Better question, is he even capable of doing this alone? No. And that is where we will pick up next week in the first marriage.